Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. Genesis uh, 14 is the story of Abram before he was Abraham, but after he had already been called of God. And so if you're familiar with Abram's life, um, the, the Lord reaches out to him because he sees something in him while he was a pagan, by the way. Uh, the Lord reaches out to him and calls him uh, to leave the place he, that was his native land and to go to a place he knew not of, which has been a big part of the story of our church and the story of all who have hitched their wagon to whatever God is doing here is we've leave, been leaving behind what we've known. We've been leaving behind, um, uh, for many of us, decades or generations. Some of you are third, fourth, fifth generation Christians, and you've been doing it a certain way. And the Lord has called you to leave that thing and to, to move into a place that you didn't know anything about. You didn't know anything about the people or the language or anything else here. And uh, it's funny because I sat down next to a man last week, just in between services really quickly. And, uh, and I, I introduced myself and we talked and he just gave me a 20-second version of how, you know, he ended up here, had gone through some really tough stuff at his last church and blah, blah, blah. And then um, with, like, fear in his eyes, he said, there's no speaking in tongues here, right? <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> you bet there is. And uh, I said, it's not scary, you know, and, uh, you know, people aren't running around screaming it in your ear or whatever. And then I looked next to him, and there was a guy who was, like, really uh, a, good, a, good, a good friend, but who does not speak in tongues and does not believe it's for today, but who comes and worships with us nonetheless. And, and it was sitting just a couple chairs away. And I turned, and I looked, and I said, well, I can guarantee you this guy's not going to speak in tongues. <laughs> And uh, I was like, Lord, thank you for balance. Thank you. Thank you that just two seats away from this gentleman is somebody who, you know, is, is here anyway in spite of, you know, the differences and the, the, the theological poles that we have. I love it. God's so good. So Genesis 14, um, there's a, a very strange encounter. Abraham's life, his journey is full of strange encounters. Um, but there is one particular one that I've preached on before. I will preach on it again. I love it because it's, it's one of these places where we see a thread woven throughout scripture and, and it just, it is saturated. It's heavy with the mystery of God. And I love that. I love speaking on stuff that not only do I not know everything about, but that we can't know everything about this side of heaven. Amen. We're embracing the mystery here, right? So after, um, after Abraham, so part of Abraham's journey is part of as he's on this path, the Lord's called him to, he ends up uh, going into battle on, a, on this one particular occasion. It's, a, it's an intense um, war uh, because his nephew Lot had been sort of kidnapped. All his people had been brought into, um, uh, into the slavery of some of these warring nations and warring tribal kings and that sort of thing that was going on in the area. And so Abraham, Abram, I'm going to call him Abraham, but don't listen to me. It's Abram, okay? 
uh, Abram goes into battle and God gives him incredible victory over these nations that had come up against uh, uh, his, his nephew Lot. And so I'm going to pick up as he's on his way back from battle. Now, this battle was really epic because like half of this group of people had been swallowed up by tar pits that were in the region. And uh, which I just think, you know, again, it's the Lord, right? He's just, he's just showing up. Even in tar pits, God's showing up with victory. And so, and so Abram has this incredible victorious outcome and he comes back into where he was staying. And so I want to uh, pick up in verse 17 of chapter 14. It says, after Abram returned from his victory over Kedar Lomar and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba. That is the king's valley. And verse 10 says, And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God most high, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. And then we're going to read it. In quotations after that, it says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has defeated your enemies for you. Interesting, right? Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. The king of Sodom, in verse 21, said to Abram, Give back my people who were captured, because um, the people of Sodom had been captured along with Lot, okay? And so that was part of who Abram had brought out when he, when he retrieved what was his. It says, Give my people back who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Verse 22 says, Abram replied to the king of Sodom, Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I'm the one who made Abram rich. I will accept only what my young warriors have already eaten, and I request that you give a fair share of the goods to my allies. And then he lists them, Anram, Eshkol, and Mamre. So, interesting story here. But I, I think it merits our attention, and even as I was in it this time, I felt the Lord drawing me to totally different points than what I preached on probably seven or eight years ago out of this passage. So, again, the context is that Abram had just come back from a victory, and I want to, I want to point out that we're not ending this message in victory, we're beginning from a place of victory. And this particular story, you know, you can go back a few more verses or another chapter and read the context leading up and the battle leading up. But I felt like the Lord wanted us intentionally to, to instead of make victory the, uh, the goal at the end, to, to come into the story from a place of victory. To realize, that, to realize that whatever outcome we're hoping to achieve, which in this case is blessing, but that that outcome is, is sort of respondent to a victorious mindset, a victorious place, um, a pre-understanding, uh, a preface to the book itself with a place of victory. And if you're writing things down, we can write down, Because of Jesus, our story is victory before its blessing. 
Victory before its blessing. Now, victory was won on our behalf, as you read in Melchizedek's story. He said, who defeated your enemies for you, right? Victory was won on our behalf, but blessing is the outcome of how we respond to victory. I'm going to say that again. Blessing is the outcome of how we respond to victory. A lot of times, and I know you might say, Zach, this sounds like a lot of semantics. I don't think we have time for this. we got to wrap up here in a few minutes. Um, but stay with me because I believe that while some of these words we kind of grouped, oh, blessing and victory, and we sing songs and they kind of mean the same thing. I think that victory has to be the, the, the pre-understanding. It has to be the prerequisite for us to really be able to embrace blessing the way we were meant to and to be able to respond to that victory the right way, okay? So one more time, because of Jesus, our story is victory before it's blessing. And victory was won on our behalf, while blessing is the outcome of how we respond to that victory. Sometimes I think we totally miss what the Lord means for blessing because we're not responding to victory. It's important to understand. So on his way home from the victory, two people come out to meet him. Number one, the king of Sodom. Number two, the king of Salem. And they both came out to meet him in the valley of the kings. It's all very important. And I don't have time to preach this the way I'd like to. But I, I absolutely have to get a couple points across. So stay with me. I want to just point out first that Sodom came out to negotiate. Okay? It actually says that in verse 17. The king of Sodom went out to meet him. All right, and we see as that conversation uh, starts to unfold that uh, Sodom was trying to make a deal with Abram. Now, in this case, as the Lord was showing me stuff here, Sodom, which is the Sodom of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the Sodom that Jesus references, and when he says it'll be better for the days of Sodom, it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be of Tyre and Sidon because of the miracles that I've done. This is Sodom of like where we get the, the words in our legal system now. This is that Sodom. And for all intents and purposes today, it, it represents the world, okay? He's already defeated the enemy, but now he's coming back and is greeted by Sodom and Salem. If you're writing things down, get this. The world will always leverage anything it lets you keep. The world will always leverage anything it lets you keep. You give me back the people and you can keep all the goods. And Abram, being a man of business and wisdom, says, nope, you can have it all back because it will never be said of me that you made me rich. He could see it. He could see it and he knew the, the motive behind this negotiation. And saints, I believe that that as Christians today, oftentimes we are lacking the discernment to understand the negotiations that the world is trying to play out with us. And so I, my prayer for us is that, is that we sort of wise up to these things. Um, he says, and Abram says, I'll take only what my young warriors have already eaten. And basically it means after sustaining, he releases it all back. After sustenance, he releases it all back. And I want to ask this question. How interested are we in what we can get from the world? And how tight are we holding on to it? I understand that we work jobs, that we get paychecks. 
and that we use that to sustain ourselves. And I understand that, you know, uh, there are worldly systems at play and there are, you know, uh, worldly governments that we pay taxes to and there are, uh, there's worldly infrastructure. And in a lot of ways, it looks like Sodom. But note the negotiation. You keep the possessions and I'll take the people. You keep the possessions, I'll take the people. Why? Because the king of Sodom understood that while all the gold and silver can go away, without people, there would be nothing to carry out that work. You keep the luxury, let me take the legacy. And you know what? We've fallen for it. We've fallen for it. We are so, we are so desperate for, for the treasures of this world that we have traded our children and our children's children. And then we come in this church and we cry over lost generations and over prodigals and over over. All, all that seems to have been robbed from us when it wasn't really robbed, it was traded. We have chosen our jobs. We have chosen our careers. We have chosen our promotions and our paychecks over our children. And when Sodom came out, you bet your butt that he was more interested in the people than he was in the possessions. Abram, you, you, you can take it all. Look what you can get. You know, the word Sodom, it literally means burning. It's sobering thought, isn't it? When I first read it, I, you know, I thought of like the, the lust that Sodom is known for in chapters to come and the burning. But as I continue to do research, um, you know, they, they didn't name themselves Sodom after their sin. They, they, they called it burning because um, the soil of this region was uh, bituminous. It, was, um, it was, uh, had a lot of petroleum uh, attributes to it. And so it actually was prone to fires. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I'm sure somebody knew it. Chris probably knew it. Somebody knew it. It was prone to fires. Which uh, historical uh, people who are trying to reconcile all the supernatural things God did with ways that they could have just happened scientifically talk about how Sodom was kind of ripe for a natural disaster um, based on, you know, just the content of the and the properties of the soil itself. But I, I think it's interesting. And I and I just I want to move forward from this. But I, I feel like as a church, I want us to embrace this conviction that there is a world on fire, a world that is burning with every sin under the sun that is so grateful for the work we're putting in to try and salvage and bring back and rescue whatever we can. But the, the scary thing is, is that on the heels of victory, 
when we're not really after the blessing of God and instead the bounty and the booty of this world, when we're really not after the things of God, the blessing of the Father, we come back from our Christian victories and before we ever make it to the blessing, we have negotiated out what matters most to God. And we see as Abram starts to to enter into covenant with the Father... In, in chapters to come, and I can't go there, but I, as he starts to enter in, the covenant God makes with him is you will, you will uh, have more children than the sand on the shore and the stars in the sky. I'm going to give to you an entire nation of people will be your, uh, your legacy. And Abram at this time was already a rich man. But he understood something that that at this point in history, people understood way better than they understand today. And that is that true wealth is found in the ability to leave a legacy. True wealth is found in our ability to stay invested in the generations to come. And when we lose sight of that, the way that America has turned on the blinders to this, you know, I've heard it talked about, you know, how... Uh, there's so many memes and quips and quotable quotes out there about generations and um, credit cards and spending their kids' inheritance and you know oh you know now we're 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 not leaving our kids inheritance we're leaving them debt right like that's the new thing like yeah I just met a woman on a cr- um, when we were on vacation and and she was like oh yeah I'm spending my kids' inheritance and I was like ugh. <laughs> ugh. She fell for the negotiation. You, you, you take the vacation. You rack up the debt. You have, 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 have all the things in the world that you want. And guess what? You can get them. Just let me have your kids. Lord, help us. Somebody else comes out to meet him, Melchizedek, this mysterious Old Testament figure of whom we know neither where he came from or where he's going. Mysterious man. We know two things about him, that he is a priest and a king. Sound familiar? A priest and a king. We know from the New Testament, we know from Hebrews, that Jesus came in the line of Melchizedek, a priest forever with neither beginning nor end. We know that he is the king of Salem. That is not Salem, Massachusetts. That is Salem, the would-be Jerusalem, one day. The king of Jerusalem And Salem means peace, the king of peace and the priest of the most high God. You see a picture starting to be painted, right? Melchizedek shows up on the scene. Bringing what I find interestingly resemblant of communion. He brings bread and wine out to meet Abram. And as Abram is turning off the Sodom negotiation, Melchizedek comes out to bless him. Now, I love this picture of the bread and wine because, again, I, I see it as if, if, if Jesus at Passover served the last supper, I call this the first supper. 
okay? He's coming out and, you know, again, how far do you want to take it? Is it really a type of Christ? Is it really this foreshadowing thing? For today it is, so just go with me. He comes out with this communion and as he's serving it, both as a priest and a king, it begs the question, how does he fit in? First of all, the fact that the father's doing stuff we don't know about is probably, like I said, my favorite part about how he fits in. It's, it's a mystery. Where did he come from? Where does he go? I don't know. It's Cotton Eye Melchizedek. <laughs> Melchizedek doesn't fit as well in that song. But the communion and the blessing come, partake in this sacrifice, participate in this, own this, consume this, digest this, what I'm serving you, the meal that the king of Jerusalem, the meal that the priest of the most high God with neither beginning nor end is serving you. Sit down and share in this meal of bread and wine and let me bless you. And now from a place of victory, the blessing is spoken. Blessed be Abram of God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has defeated your enemies for you. That blessing is so simple, and yet it created, it created a foundation for the covenant that God was about to make with Abram it, to be built on. And Abraham then gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. Now, I want to talk about this for a minute. And I know when we talk about money, sometimes I think people get squirrely. But I'll be honest with you. I think I get squirrely, maybe more than everybody else in here. Because it's, it's one of those things that I know is such a touchy thing. But as I'm in this passage, I can't ignore this. I don't want anything to do with what you have. Instead, I want to give and release of myself. And I think the Lord took note. And so I, I, I wonder today, I think about it. I think about the call of God on our lives. I think about the call of God on our church and I think about the sacrifice that we were called to make and how the call cannot be responded to without sacrifice. And there are spiritual components to that, which we're all very quick to jump on, which is a little bit ironic. Ashley and I were talking about this a couple days ago and we were talking about how many of us, we are so quick to jump on the God can heal cancer train or God can bring back the prodigal mantra. We, we jump up and down to the songs that talk about his promises, that talk about his blessing, that talk about, I'm gonna see your victory. I'm victory for the battle of Nobody's ever doing this. I'm gonna see your victory. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. Why? Because we have misunderstood victory to mean that everything is coming to us. We missed 
the very foundation of what the man who God's covenant was originally with regarding promises and blessing and descendants and legacy and how generation upon generation would receive his truth. We missed what he taught us, that true victory and true blessing is about what can be given, what can be released, what can be laid down at the feet of intercession. Would you stand with me this morning? There's so much going on here. There's so much going on here, like in the natural. And in the natural, what you do when there are big projects and there are things like that is you, you uh, have campaigns to like raise money and things like that. And if you remember going back to, um, going back to the fall, I think it was uh, sometime in October is when we tried to get things started and then it got pushed off to December. But we said there were two ways that people could um, get sort of involved in the financial responsibility. And I say it like that because that's what it is. There were two ways that we as a church, and I say that as a responsibility, not to those who this is your first or second or third week, but I say that to those who have left a place they knew to come to a place they knew not of and have been walking in victory and blessing in this place. If the Lord has blessed you in this place, if the Lord has given you victory in this place, if the Lord has called you to a table in this house where he has, he has been sustaining you, there is a responsibility of response. And so... I bring this up because I feel like, well, you know, back then we talked about there were two ways. We needed to sell bonds. We needed to sell four and a half million dollars of bonds. And we needed to just give because we sell the bonds and we pay them back, right? That just creates our financing to pay this mortgage, right? And um, I want you to know, by the way, I was, not only was I blown away, the people at Share Financial were blown away. I think out of four and a half million dollars, I think we sold all but like $30,000 worth of bonds. That's pretty impressive. So while you're clapping, what I want to say is congratulations on making good investments for yourself. Okay? And generations to come. The other piece of that is just giving. And here's the deal about giving. You know, giving, giving is not always this, somebody standing up here with a chart and showing you that, well, if you give 8% of your income, this is how God will bless you with this percentage spread out over this many years. And in, in, with this much interest accrual, if you give nine and a half percent, you'll get this much. No, it takes way more faith than that. It takes way more obedience than that. It takes a way greater responsibility than that. And the church is calling us to maturity, to grow up, to grow up with our finances, to grow up from this, these extremes that keep us so imbalanced. We stand up. We, we can walk that 10-inch wide foundation, but we, when we step up on the three and a half inch wide, like when things start to get framed, and now you're walking like this, one toe in front of, toe to heel, 
Saints, we don't have the luxury anymore of living out in these extremes. Tell the world they can have their luxuries. You keep the legacy. You keep the legacy. I am convinced of this, and probably because I think it's like statistically true. But if half of Christians tithed, tithe 10% off the gross of your income, if half of Christians tithe, no church would ever need to run a building campaign. We would never even have to ask for money for anything. But we've, we've instead fallen into this culture of the world that it's like, well, if we can cast big enough vision, then people will buy into it. Guess what? There's vision here that winning the mega ball million, billion, nine, seven, seven point six billion dollars couldn't pay for. There's that much vision. Okay. There's vision here that, that is bigger than New England. There's vision here. But guess what? I'm not going to try to sell you on it. I'm going to call you to a place of responsibility and maturity because I feel that's where the Lord's calling us as a church. One thing that he says in um, Malachi concerning the tithe, he says, test me in this. Test me. Now, you don't see God saying that very often. In fact, usually it, it, it doesn't end up well for people that test God. Fair? But this is one area where he says, test me. Test me. Bring into the storehouse what I've called for. And note, the only reason he's called for it is not because of the law, but because Abram's heart. We are all descendants of, did anybody sing, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had father. There isn't a verse in there about giving a tithe. But it was on Abram's heart and the Lord loved it. And it's right after this encounter, right following this encounter, the Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female and a goat. So Abram presented these to them. And we see this covenant start to form. He found a man who was willing to freely give, who saw what the Lord showed him, victory, blessing, turned his back on the dealings with the world and said, okay, Lord, it's yours. And I believe that as we grow into that as a church, we will see those generations come back. We will see legacy form, not because we finally have, oh, a flashy enough ministry to attract them, not because of this or that or the other. What, why did we drain our accounts to build a, a King's Academy? Why did we spend so much cash to renovate and to build and to, and to take on this crazy thing? Why? Because we said we'd rather see the generations come here. We'd rather see, we'd rather see the investments go into our kids and our kids' kids. We'd rather, we'd rather impact the community that way. We'd rather see New England change that way. And so I, and I love this about our church and I, and I don't live in fear of these things, but I do believe with my whole heart 
that this is not about, well, let's raise up enough money to finish this project or let's raise enough money to go buy this. No. I don't, I don't ever want to raise money again. That's a worldly thing. That's a concept of this world. I believe that we bring into the storehouse what belongs to the Lord. If you have any other questions about tithing, talk to somebody that knows more about it than I do. But I'm just going to tell you, it works. It works. All right. So, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for um, the mysterious way that you show up. The mysterious way, God, that we can't do the math in our heads for it to make sense. We thank you, though, Lord, for the way that you have um, that you have created culture around obedient hearts and men of and women of great faith throughout your word. And so, God, I pray that we would see the favor that you took upon Abram when he responded with release, when he approached you with open hands recognizing that it was by your intercession, not by negotiation, that victory came. And so, Lord, this story doesn't just end with victory. It starts with victory. And I pray that from that place of acknowledging who you are and what you've already done, Lord, the way that you've already blessed us, God, I pray that, that the giving of our tithe, the, the, the sacrifice of 10%, Lord, of what, what everything we have, God, that that wouldn't be seen as this means of getting blessed. But, Lord, it would be seen as a response to the fact that we are already exceedingly and abundantly, far beyond measure, blessed. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you, and have the best day of your life.